Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and as always, I am joined by my good friend, Scott H. Gardner. Hello, how's it going? Thank you for that stirring introduction. I appreciate that. Oh, I, 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 <laughs> we we, we, we got to keep it exciting for people, because... <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain, folks. Scott and I have actually been listening to old episodes of Tales just to kind of get back into the groove. And uh, one, wow, we used to swear. And two, <laughs> <laughs> yes, holy crap. Um, you know, it, it's it's it almost be, must be like when Kevin Smith saw Clerks on the big screen for the first time and realized how much cursing was actually in the film. <laughs> um, but two, uh, we one of the hallmarks of the show was the rousing introductions we would give whenever yes. we would come in. We would be like, "Hey," you know, it's <laughs> bringing that Stanley level of uh, enthusiasms. Enthusiasms. <laughs> this time out, folks, we are going back to our original format of having both All Star Squadron and Infinity Incorporated in the same episode because Scott and I did a little. Uh, conferring the lawyers got involved i think a knife was pulled at one point <laughs> but uh we really want to get to crisis uh even though it sadly means the end of all of the earth 2 fun that we've been having which means uh we might have to redo some of the introductions we have <laughs> yeah in the post in the post crisis world but we want to get to crisis we think that you want us to get to crisis We've got everything pretty much mapped out, but to get there within our lifetime, uh, we uh, <laughs> we decided that you know between having All Star Squadron and Infinity Incorporated, plus in a couple of weeks, three or four or five, we've got America versus the JSA for two weeks. We've got another JLA JSA crossover that is uh, interesting. Uh, I don't Actually, know that I've ever read it. I, I wondered if you had ever read it before. I'm looking I had forward to that one because Supergirl is in it. I had read that. That was like one of the first Justice League of America comics I ever read. Oh, wow. Uh, I've got a whole story for it, so I'll save it for that. So, but this week, folks, 
This week we're really excited because All-Star Squadron number 36 has Earth 2's greatest heroes versus the power of Shazam! We have been looking forward to this for such a long, long time, oh, and uh, it's amazing to actually be here now. This is uh, this is like roughly the halfway point now, isn't it? Because All Star Squadron ran what sixty seven issues, somewhere I think? around sixty seven issues. So yeah, yeah, we're right. We're 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 pretty much almost at the halfway point, and you know a lot of those are going to be kind of interesting to cover because uh, at one point this basically just turns into Secret Origins. Right, yeah. Uh, for several issues. And then we got a couple weird interludes. We got a retelling of an old Superman story to cover yeah. uh, towards the end as well. So that's, that's you know, it's going to be so weird after the crisis. You know, that's why I'm trying to enjoy this while we can. Mm-hmm. Because after the crisis, the whole history and characters start changing and backstories start changing. And I. I Infinity Incorporated actually does not really lose all that much momentum right to, until the end. So, uh, And we've got a whole new title to cover, and then after that we can figure out what we want to do. But today, I mean, if you, if you talk to fans of this series and you ask them, you know, what are your favorite issues, what are your favorite stories, uh, this one... This one comes up. I mean, you posted the cover on Facebook and got a lot of traction yep. out of that. Yep. So, Scott, because I knew he loved this so much, and because we completely forgot where we had left off in the order of who was doing the uh, synopsis. <laughs> uh, Scott, knowing that he loves Captain Marvel more than I do, uh, and, and I'm not ashamed to admit that either. You are... Between uh, between the television series and all that, you have a have a deeper love for this character. I thought Scott's got to be the one to do the synopsis for this first part. So take it away. Thank you very much. I, I really do. Uh, I'm a huge Captain Marvel fan, mostly, as you say, for sentimental reasons from my childhood. Uh, you know, when when Captain Marvel was on TV and the Shazam show and everything. Uh, but I, you know, I also like a lot of his comic book stuff, latter day comic book stuff, you know, from the from the seventies and eighties, and uh, yeah, I would hold this up there as one of my favorite issues of the entire series because this is awesome. This is essentially the Captain Marvel versus Superman fight that I felt like we were promised way back in that that Justice League of America. Uh, crossover what was that like 137 or something yeah, like that where we were very very disappointed very disappointed because it's right there on the cover you know and then it doesn't ever really happen but this time it happens and it's awesome so i'm going to go ahead and just dive right into this one we have all-star squadron number 36 this is the August 1984 cover-dated issue. It was actually on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, May 31st, 1984. It has an absolutely incredible cover on it by Rich Buckler and Jerry Ordway to, working together. It's fantastic. Again, original team. Mm-hmm. It uh, depicts... Green Lantern, Hawkman, Wonder Woman, Plastic Man, Batman, and The Flash rushing in behind, basically coming to the assistance of Superman, who looks unconscious, being pummeled 
by Captain Marvel, and Marvel's kind of looking over his shoulder. He's just got a maniacal look on his face as he sees the heroes rushing in behind him. I particularly like that uh, Green Lantern goes straight for the headshot here. He's just zapping Marvel right in the head. Doesn't really look like it's affecting Marvel at all, but I thought that was neat. (laughs) I uh, I, I think Batman's there for moral support more than anything else. And uh, I just noticed this, that uh, Marvel's... uh, it's like his knuckles are a little bit redder than the rest of him. So yeah, I've got like that he... on my cover too. I, I didn't know if that was a coloring error or you know that just went everywhere, or if they were actually trying to make it that he uh, his hands were swollen from pummeling on Superman's invulnerable form. Right. I, I like that though. If if that is intentional, I think that's a nice touch because it's very very subtle. But yeah, Superman's not doing so good. He looks like he just uh, he just got knocked out essentially. And uh, it's very much like what happens in the issue as well, as we'll see here in a moment. Original cover price on this, 75 cents. <sighs> Thunder Over London is the name of this tale. Roy Thomas is the writer slash editor. Rich Buckler is the guest penciler. And, you know, I'm actually shocked that it doesn't list him as co-creator because, you know, of course, that's what he was, co-creator of the All-Star Squadron. Uh, Richard Howell is the guest inker. Carl Gafford, colorist. Cody, simply just credited as Cody, who we like to call Cody Sunchild, letterer. And it does not have a roll call in this issue, but me just being a swell kind of guy, I went ahead and made one up for you. So our roll call for this issue is The Flash, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Superman, Green Lantern, and Batman. And every time I say that, I'm tempted to go, here. Something out there is going to get that. Uh, the Justice so, League exactly. of America. <laughs> the All-Stars, consisting of the previously mentioned heroes, have the balcony section of a movie cinema all to themselves as they watch in horrified fascination the latest newsreel out of Britain. London has taken a terrible pounding from Hitler's Blitz, but still managed to weather the storm and persevere. But now there is a new threat, Hitler's retaliation weapon, the super Nazi. The newsreel footage presents frightening footage. Ooh, that, that's a bad sentence that I wrote right there. <laughs> frightening footage of the red and gold figure making quick work of the RAF and eventually even defeating Church- Churchill's own quote-unquote super weapon and personal bodyguard, Sir Justin, the Shining Knight. The All-Stars are rattled by what they've seen, and none of them is more upset than Superman. The Man of Steel has taken, has taken great exception to the term super-Nazi, and already you can just feel the tension and uh, that there's a fight, just a brewing. So the team thanked the uh, theater manager for allowing them some privacy in their viewing of the newsreel, and then it's off to the White House. Along the way, they are joined by their pal and FBA liaison, Plastic Man. As the All-Stars casually stroll down the city streets, Superman stops at a newsstand to play a hunch and finds that against all odds, against all logic, his suspicions were correct. The Axis mystery man in the newsreel footage, the Super Nazi, is none other than the comic book character Captain Marvel, somehow sprung to life right off the funny book pages. His teammates try to convince the Man of Tomorrow that it's just a trick or a Nazi ruse or something, 
that comic book characters simply don't come to life, but to no avail. Superman is pissed off. He flash fries the comic in his hands with his heat vision and then streaks off to find a way to take care of the crimson-clad carbon copy if I have to go all the way to Berlin to do it, he says. The others, unable to do a thing to stop Superman, resume their journey to the White House, unaware of a pretty young girl and a lame young boy who try to get their attention as the team zoom away from the scene. In Berlin, Adolf Hitler's secret weapon, Captain Marvel, returns to him and swears fealty to the Fuhrer. Uncle Adolf orders Marvel to seek out the American called Superman and destroy him. Hitler is warned by one of his men that Marvel may not be up to the task, but the Fuhrer scoffs at this idea. After all, not only does he wield the Spear of Destiny, assuring that no superhero dare challenge Germany, lest they fall under Hitler's sway, but Hitler, but Hitler also holds captive the ultimate leverage to ensure Captain Marvel's utter devotion, a bound and gagged American boy named Billy Batson. The All-Stars finally make it to their meeting with the President and are immediately dispatched by FDR to England for purposes as yet unknown. Ahead of them, Superman has already reached London, where he is fired upon by the Brits, who are already leery of flying mystery men thanks to Marvel's earlier attacks. Superman e easily dodges the shells and uses his X-ray vision to locate fellow All-Star the Shining Knight, recuperating from the beating handed to him by Captain Marvel. Superman asks Sir Justin for details about the battle, but before the knight can relay little more than the fact that magic appears to be involved regarding the captain, sounds of another air attack draw Superman's attention. He streaks outside the hospital and straight into conflict with the big red cheese himself. Superman double uppercuts his foe and sends him reeling. But that's really the uh, last good blow that Superman manages to get in. Captain Marvel socks the Man of Steel in the face and clobbers him in the back of the head. Superman breaks Cap's hold and then alternately tries holding Marvel at bay and then going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but is clearly outmatched, taking a devastating blow right to the nose. Finally, Superman is forced to resort to using powers he possesses that Marvel does not and blasts the Captain but good with his heat vision. But Marvel retaliates with a teeth-rattling knee to Superman's chin, then a double-fisted roundhouse that sends him plummeting out of the sky while his all-star compatriots can do little but watch in horror. Superman slams into the ground hard. The Flash and Plastic Man rush to his aid, but the resilient Kryptonian is merely stunned. Captain Marvel, shrugging off the effects of Superman's wallops, is confronted by Green Lantern who puts up a valiant effort with his will-powered magic ring, but who is no match for the power of Shazam. Green Lantern stalls by blinding Captain Marvel with a green flare blast, allowing time for the cavalry to show up, which consists of Hawkman and Wonder Woman, with Batman in tow. Along with Green Lantern, the team uh, seemingly forces Captain Marvel into retreat, and then they set out in hot pursuit of him, intent on finishing this fight. Thankfully for everyone, it's Batman's quick thinking that saves the day when he orders everyone to stop. For God's sake, says the Dark Knight, don't fly any further. If they had continued to chase him, they'd have flown right into the sphere of influence of the Spear of Destiny and, once again, found themselves the helpless slaves of Adolf Hitler. 
The team lands and, along with a recovering Superman, speculate on the nature of Captain Marvel, his powers, and his uh, Superman's apparent ties to magic when a voice behind them calls their attention. Emerging from the shadows, the pretty young girl and lame young boy that tried to flag them down in Washington introduced themselves to the heroes as Mary Batson and Freddie Freeman, and they have something to show the All-Stars. With the magic words, Shazam! and Captain Marvel, respectively, the young pair stand revealed as Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. But they are mistaken by Superman as Hitler Youth versions of that super-Nazi, and Green Lantern orders his teammates to get them, All-Stars, before they get us. Next issue, Lightning over Berlin. And that's the issue. What would you think of this one, Mike? Oh, wow. Do we want to do the <laughs> historical notes first? Sure, go ahead. Uh, let's see. This is out of volume two. Two. Yes. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Lead us off with this. Oh, okay. Well, uh, Hitler calls the mesmerized Captain Marvel the first of his... Furjeltungsawafa? <sighs> Very good. His retaliation weapons, the phrase with, uh, with initial, was used on our world in 1944 to 1945 for the Germans' V-1 and V-2 rockets that rained down over London. One movie goer refers to Edward R. Murrow, the American who gained fame making radio broadcasts during the Blitz of 1940 when Nazi bombers dropped deadly tonnage on London. Edward R. Murrow, he was the good night and good luck guy, right? I think so. I think so. Good movie, by the way. Says here, the Shining Knight's Lance has at least turn the page. Where the the hell does this? Where does this resume at? Oh, there we go. Some effect on Captain Marvel since it was treated centuries ago by Merlin the Magician. The comic book cover of Captain Marvel Adventures number four and panels of Billy Batson changing into Captain Marvel are skimmed by the All-Stars at a newsstand. And I want to add to that, you can also see the beginnings of a Master Comics issue and Pep Comics, which was the first appearance of Archie Andrews. Hmm, That's right, I had forgotten that. And you want to hear something funny? Bob... Bob Hastings was the voice of Commissioner Gordon on Batman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. He's also the voice of Superboy in the 60s Filmation show. And thanks to Mark Hamill, I found out he was the original Archie Andrews, or one of the people to play Archie Andrews on the Archie radio show back oh, in the wow. 40s. <laughs> so, so his comic book street cred stretches all the way to the Golden Age. That Weird. same that it's same page other. that you're talking about where you can see the other issues like Master Comics and Pap Comics and stuff, that panel above where Superman's actually picking the uh, the issue off the stands, the Captain Marvel issue off the stands, the comic right above that is an issue of WoW Comics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Wow. That's awesome. And next to it, I think, is Atari Force. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what other notes we have here? Engineer Gutzen, who calls on Hitler, is the man who will send the JSAers to distant planets in All-Star Comics number 13, as well as in All-Star Squadron number 50. 
Yeah, that's an issue. Our storyline, I yeah. don't particularly care for. Yeah, those backups are uh, going to be a little hard to get through. So. Yeah. Hitler uses the term Ubermensch, which can be basically translated as Superman. The word was coined by philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century for a superior type of human being. FDR introduces the All-Stars to William Stevenson, the real-life Canadian who'd uh, been a secret liaison for the British government with the president since 1940. Stevenson, whose story is told in the 1970s bestseller The Man Called Intrepid, was first mentioned in The Untold Origin of the Justice Society in DC's special, Volume 7, number 29, which I believe we have covered on this show. Oh, yes, we did. Incidentally, he was credited by... Ian Fleming as his inspiration for James Bond. Ooh, I have no idea. Well, we're just we're just bringing all kinds of fun facts <laughs> to the show tonight. Uh, Roy Thomas explains on the letters page that the quality published heroine Lady Luck, whom one reader wants to see as an all-star, is the property of Will Eisner. Hmm. Uh, Roy Thomas uses the letters page to blast quote-unquote, one unperceptive fan credit. Yes, I read that, and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, he, he was very nice about it, but yeah, he definitely let him have it. Yeah. Uh, who had recently referred to the, quote-unquote, retroactive continuity, that's a retcon, folks, of All-Star Squadron as, quote-unquote, pointless chronology. Roy made no bones about feeling that, quote, the only thing pointless was his review. I loved that. I thought that was that was it was classy. It was a nice way of saying screw you. I thought that was nice. Now in the in the artwork there is a a mention uh with art by Alan Kupperberg and Frank Springer that Roy had done this kind of thing before of bringing mm-hmm. in a, a hero in over in the Invaders and I remember this issue uh where he brought Thor yes into World War 2 was actually that that series is really hit and miss, uh, unfortunately. I mean, I like it, but it, you know there are there are storylines where I'm pretty much put to sleep. But uh, but that one was one of the the cooler ones in my opinion because it was kind of interesting to see Cap and Thor having to face off against each other in World War Two. I'd like to read. I've never read it. I, I don't own it, and I've never read it. But I'd like to just just based on this panel alone. I'd really like to read that because I think I'd enjoy it. It looks like it's right up my alley. I like this idea of of Hitler, you know, pulling, you know, other. Well, in this case, it makes a lot of sense because you know Hitler actually was. Uh, you know, it's not just made up for for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hitler really was obsessed with the occult and and really trying. Yes, to, he was to do all kinds of, of strange and interesting things occult-based. And so I could see him actually doing something like this, you know, where he's trying to, uh, you know, rouse the gods or, or whatever the case may be. Here he actually uses some sort of occult power to, you know, yeah, literally pull Thor out of Asgard. I think that's a really neat idea. I don't know that that's so much what's going on with the Captain Marvel here, but it's kind of the same idea. Similar premise, different uh, different reasoning behind it, I guess right. you could say. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into notes in particular. And uh, since I did the synopsis, go ahead and run with your notes, Mike. What did you think of this one? I'm very curious to see what you, uh, what you thought about this one. Okay, on the first page, uh, the first thing that stood out to me was that Batman's 
ears, for lack of a better term, look a little weird. They look almost dogish instead of baddish. But that's not a complaint because I love this page. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have two things to say about Wonder Woman. One is the uh, five-year-old version of Wonder Woman is looking back at Flash going, Did you just cut one? (laughs) Um for for those that don't like scatological humor, the other thing is she's looking at back, looking back at Flash and going, "Would you shut up?" <laughs> she's who just who just touched my butt. That's what she she saying. is just gorgeous yeah, on this page is. too. Yes, yeah, she um, is. Overall, I like the artwork in here. I don't think that Richard Howell is Rick Buckler Rich Buckler's ideal inker because I think he overpowers Buckler's pencils. In, especially in the face, because Hal eventually starts drawing the title, and he has kind of a very distinctive look, as we saw in the All-Star Annual that we covered last time. Mm-hmm. So um, I would have liked to have seen more Buckler in this, I guess. I guess that's my main criticism of the art, is I wanted to see more Rich Buckler and less Rich Howell. So, But having said that... Uh, I, I like the idea of Superman and Batman and all them just sitting in a movie theater watching newsreels that's just <laughs> it's it's kind of a cool way to explain what's going on with captain marvel and this 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 whole first scene is just amazing uh made more so on page four of all the reaction shots of the various all-stars i mean superman is just pissed he's off. pissed off yeah and wonder woman is like she's like watching it with a cold calculating eye like, she's just trying, you know, Green Lantern's a little more upset, and Flash is pissed too, but it's just nice to see that. Uh, pages five and six, really cool to see Sir Justin get involved. Mm-hmm. And I like how, you know, the uh, the announcer, it's just like, the man called Shining Knight, who was rumored to be an actual <laughs> knight of the King Arthur's Round Table, transplanted to the 20th century, on his winged, ho- winged horse called Victory, challenged the Super Nazi. His lance, too, shattered against the mighty chest of the human Virtuslingawafa. Uh, he would have said it right. Surprisingly, however, it seems to have had more effect on him than aerial gunfire had had. So it's just like, you know, we're being told that because of the magic nature of the weapon, it, it doesn't injure him. But it does have an effect, as does the sword. But, you know, I'm sorry, I love the Shining Knight to death. He's, he's no match for Captain Marvel. No. Ah, Captain Marvel's just so awesome. Uh, Superman's kind of a jackass in the next couple of pages, but, I, you know, he's just mad because somebody out there is being called Super Nazi, and he doesn't like his name being misappropriated like that. But he's kind of a jerk to Plastic Man on page 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I love on page 8 that shot of Jay Garrick scratching his head in front of the vending machine that Plastic Man has turned himself into. (laughs) We yeah. talked about the what? Uh, no, that's okay. I was just gonna say I have a note on that, but I'll hold it till I got to get to my notes. Um, page nine. It's interesting that in a world where Superman and Batman and all of them exist, that the Fawcett characters and Archie are the ones that they read about in comic books. I actually kind of right. like that because eventually on Earth One the comic book adventures of Jay Garrick would inspire Barry Allen. Right. So so there's kind of a nice symmetry there. Uh, page 10, I'm sure you feel this too in the second panel. Damn it, Superman, don't! Don't! It's going to be worth money someday! <laughs> <laughs> 
and he burns the comic with his heat vision. It's like, what are you doing? That goes in a bag and a board, dude. <laughs> and you got to get the golden age size. Uh, the whole scene in Germany is really cool. I don't think uh, Buckler has the artistic eye for likenesses that Jerry Ordway does, but he does very well with Hitler throughout this entire thing. I also like how on page 12, Captain Marvel looks like C.C. Beck's Captain Marvel Seagull. Absolutely, yeah. I think I have a note on that as well, but yes, he absolutely does. So I really liked that. And of course, page 13... Spear Destiny. You know, I just noticed something. That second panel on page 13, does that not look a lot like Burn? Like right around the time of, say, like uh, Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. I could see this being a panel out of that. No, I'll totally be, uh, I'm totally down with that. Um, Page 14 and 15, one, Billy Batson? Yeah. So, because I had forgotten how this played out, so it's actually going to be kind of cool when I read this, the next one next week. And on both of those pages, and basically throughout the issue, I really love how Buckler and Howell draw the Golden Age Batman. Mm -hmm. That symbol on his chest is large, and that's how I think it should be. Yep, me too. If you're not going to have that yellow oval around it. Yep, large and in charge. There's no mistaking who he is. It's a giant symbol. I I don't like it when they draw it teeny tiny on his chest because it looks ridiculous. Let me ask you, going back to uh, page 14 there, when it's uh, revealed that Hitler has not only Captain Marvel under his sway, but he has Billy Batson as a captive, did you think that this was the Earth 2 Billy Batson? I you know, actually my my first thing that I went to is that he magic it was somehow able to magically separate them. Okay, I don't know if that's how it happens, but oh, have you not read ahead? No, I I, I am I am sticking with our with my mandate from the beginning that I am not reading too far ahead on these. So yeah, it's, and I'm 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 excited to find out. This one I cheated only because I was so into this. And I was <laughs> yeah, like, all right. I bet you were. Yeah, I, I just had to go right on to the next issue. And, and uh, it's it's so awesome. And don't get me wrong. I love Captain Marvel, too. Uh, you know, I, I have liked this character pretty much. I mean, I have very dim memories of watching, like, an episode of the animated series back in, like, mm-hmm. 81. But... In my seventh grade year, I bought one of the fir- some of the first back issues I ever bought was because they were only a dollar a piece. I picked up Shazam: A New Beginning because even before I was really seriously collecting anything, I picked up Legends number five off of the newsstand, not knowing what it was, simply because Captain Marvel was on the cover and John Byrne could draw like a oh, badass Captain yes. Marvel. Yes, so, I you know, one of the first extended DC books I read was Shazam A New Beginning. And I eventually fell in love with Power of Shazam by Jerry Ordway. So I love this character. I just know that you have a, a childhood connection to it that I oh, can't definitely. touch. So. Are you a uh, member of that? There's a burn group on yes, Facebook. Yes, it's I like am. Burn Victims or something. Have you seen there's a commission that Burn did not long ago that got posted up there of his version of Superman and Captain Marvel fighting. 
Have Ooh, you seen that? I have to find that. It's really good. Cap yeah, has I... kind of a kind of look on his face, but other than that, it's it's fantastic. Because off the top of my head, did did I can't remember did his Superman and Cap ever fight during the time that he was actually working on Super? I can't recall that. Um. I know they did when he no. came back briefly just before, um, what you call it, Infinite Crisis. That was Black Adam. It was revealed to be him. What, or am I confusing my stories? I think you're confusing your stories because he fought Black Adam. He fought uh, Black Adam, but there was a story there was a, where... It was a th- yeah, it was Lightning Strikes, I think it was called. It crossed over into all three of the of the titles. I don't know if Byrne did that though. I yeah, think that, no, that was, was earlier than that. Yeah. That was no uh Byrne the closest I think they came to like meeting up under Byrne was that story that introduced Siphon and Dreadnought where they were leeching Superman's powers away. Right. So he calls in a bunch of the heroes, but Ordway drew that issue. Right. Um and Byrne was going to do a Captain Marvel series. In fact, yeah. there, uh, one of the issues, a back issue I have, I was uh, I love it because it shows some of the artwork and goes over what the series was going to be like. And apparently the main sticking point is that Byrne wanted it to be separate from the DC yeah. universe. It's funny that that was DC's sticking point because that would have been mine too. I, while I'm sure I would have enjoyed the book because, hell, it's you know Captain Marvel by John Byrne, at the same rate, I'm sure I would have been greatly disappointed that he would have set it in a in another reality as opposed to the mainstream DCU at the time. I, I would have really been bummed by that because, again, wasn't this one of the points of Crisis was to bring all this stuff together and you yeah. know, everybody plays in the same sandbox. Now, it could be argued that having Cap and Superman in the same universe doesn't really do justice to either character because there's a certain part of me that has always felt like having all these other heroes in the DC universe kind of takes away from Superman. I mean, that's kind of one of the cool things about say like the Superman films. It it's, he's the big guy, you know, he's the only guy he's, you know, the, the sole superhero in his world. And, you know, the DC universe at one time had become so bloated that it, it's almost funny that the death of Superman was such a big deal in the actual DC universe because, you know, there are a lot of other uh, characters, you know, a lot of other beings that are as powerful or more than him, honestly. And so it, it, it kind of dilutes him a little bit, I think. You put both him and Captain Marvel in the same universe and that much more so. But that's actually what I really like about this story is this is the way I would want to see a Superman versus Captain Marvel story handled. I like the fact that Superman's, I don't know if he's so much a jerk or, or an ass, is that I think what it is is that, you know, most of the, uh, most of the time Superman, you know, he's, he's the most powerful one of all of them. Yet he's, he's uh, you know, a down-to-earth, he's a humble guy he plays on the same field as everybody else yet. He's still, I mean, there's that unspoken thing. Well, you know, he's still Superman, you know, and then captain Marvel comes along in this. And I think it kind of makes 
the human part of Superman come out that is as humble and as everything and he as he tries to be, now there's somebody there that's essentially stealing his gig, you know, and and, it, and it's kind of bringing out that petty human nature, you know, that competitiveness. I don't know if I'm explaining myself no, well, but no, you I mean, know what it, I'm going for? Yeah, it makes perfect sense uh, because especially this is the Earth 2 Superman. Right. Who is more of the golden age, you know, kind of emotional, you know, leads with his chest, basically, mm-hmm. uh, type of character. So... And I really like that 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 take on Superman. You know, Andy yep. Leyland when he was doing his great series of Superman episodes last year on Hey Kids Comics, probably one of the highlights of that series for mm-hmm. me. You know, he he kind of he took the words right out of my mouth when he was talking about the the Golden Age Superman. There's something awesome about a Superman that's just going to go in there and he, he, he's just not going to take any of your shit. Right. You know? he, he's going to throw you out a window as much as look at you. And, and yes, he matured a little, but there was always that kind of, you know, the, the thing that separated the Earth-1 and the Earth-2 Superman. And, and, and then listening to the old episodes of Tales, we talked about this all the time, that one of the great things about Earth-2 is that you could have these different takes on the character. So the Earth-1 Superman would not necessarily act this way. You know, he had his share of showing his ass right, uh, from time to time. But he was, uh, since he was Superman, since he was Superboy, basically, you know, he had more of a maturity about him, I guess is the best I way to say so, that. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So it, it 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 this is why one of my big notes is that I love seeing it that it's the Earth Two Superman versus Captain Marvel mm-hmm. because one it is a Superman that's a little more a little not as powerful as the Earth One counterpart, but also willing to kind of get into the get into the dirt a little bit, mm-hmm. and two. Since these two characters are representing, represent, representing, because I can speak English, are representing their their golden age counterparts, they were head to head in sales through the golden age, through the forties, with Captain Marvel coming out on top more than once. So it makes kind of sense that if you're going to have these two characters fight, you're going to have a fight in the forties because that's where the fighting, you know, the the real fight between them was. So I kind of liked that and. To, to to very quickly comment on what you just said about, you know, Superman being kind of diluted with all the other heroes, I, I kind of agree with you, actually. I think that it's why I like a Superman that's a little more grounded. That way, the, the, the world he lives in is normal, but he's the most awesome thing in it. Right. Instead of maybe the threats that he's facing. So having... You know, your Grant Morrison-esque Fortress of Solitude may be imaginative and, and appeals to a certain audience. To me, it's just like, yeah, it's nice, but can we get back to Metropolis where he's cool? Right. And so, to a certain extent, you're right. Having all the other heroes, and especially having Captain Marvel, who is similar to him uh, power-wise. But, man, I just can't shake the love of having everybody in the DCU together, you know? <laughs> Right. I just I just can't get rid of that. And it's like sometimes it's used to such a great advantage, like an Underworld Unleashed, where Mark Wade's original intention was the most noble and pure soul in the DC universe is Superman, but then he's like, Superman, you can't use him because he's off in space on trial. 
So he switches it at the end, and it ends up being stronger for the story of having it end up being Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. And then, in that case, you have Captain Marvel kind of shining and being different, but still letting Superman be cool, too, if that makes any sense. so Definitely. But, yeah, I, I just see so... <laughs> I see both... I feel strongly about it both ways, and I actually kind of mean, mean that seriously. So, <laughs> the fight between these two... Wow. It is just... It is just majestic. I mean, the only thing that looks kind of odd is on page 18. The look on Captain Marvel's face in that top panel is a little off. But, holy crap, you can just feel the power of these two slugging it out. Mm-hmm. And Superman, like, on page 19 just gets punched in the face, but it's just like, oh, yeah, bitch, I've got heat vision. <laughs> and then, yeah, that's working really nice for a while, but then he gets a knee to the face. It's like, oh, wow, this is everything I ever wanted to see. It's it's almost as cool as the fight in Public Enemies, the animated film, mm-hmm. which had a... Uh, awesome or even that episode of justice league unlimited where they went at it so. yeah that's what i was thinking the the what's that clash is that the yes. name of that one? i love that episode love that episode i uh, you kind of feel bad for the rest of the all-stars when they're going up against him uh yeah they they don't stand a chance i'm sorry no <laughs> but the uh the batman has a really funny uh funny comment on page 22 he goes god i'd give anything to be out to be able to fly out there and help them but what does the Hawkman think he's going to do against the super nazi <laughs> wait a second batman would you would you reflect on that sentence for a second <laughs> so uh no but just just an awesome end to the issue and then the cliffhanger ending of having mary and uh freddie show up and freddie wearing that scarf and looking kind of weird but but Freddy on that last page in that second panel looks like a Mac Raboy. Like old school Yes. Uh Freddie Freeman from the Golden Age. So mm-hmm. there there is this is damn near the most perfect issue of this series. Yep. I completely agree. Cause that last panel just thrills me no end. Cause if there's anything I like better than Captain Marvel, it's Captain Marvel Jr. I love Captain Marvel Jr. He is he is one of my all-time favorite superheroes. I'm not exactly sure why. I, I think a lot of it is his costume. He's he's kind of a combination, color scheme-wise, of Captain Marvel and Superman, and I, I really <laughs> like bit. that. Yeah, I just think he's really really cool. I can totally see where uh, where Elvis was, you know was so enthralled with him because I, I I'm I'm the same way. I just think he's got a great look. That's a costume I, I always wanted as a kid to like be able to to dress up and play. Uh, is that it for your notes on this? That one? is it for my notes. All right, I do have a few on this one as well. Um, again, the cover, absolutely love this cover. I know I say this all the time, but again, poster or T-shirt, I'd happily take either. Um, but I do. We I, do I, say that a lot. I do. Yeah, I, I know I do. I know <laughs> I do. But I, I really mean it. I love, love this cover. It's fantastic. I mean, it's two. It's two of my favorite artists. You know, doing essentially all my favorite characters, and it's just fantastic. I really like the look on. I mean, Cap's body language is great in this, and uh, like, I really like, enjoy that. I just took care of these guys. Who's next? <laughs> 
You know, uh, Rich Buckler has long been one of my favorite Superman artists, despite the fact that he never really did a whole lot of Superman. He did a lot of Superman covers, and he did do yes. some Superman interior stuff, but not a lot. It never really occurred to me until rereading this issue, though. I need to check out Buckler's Batman, because I really like the way he drew Batman oh, in this issue. Yes. He's got a solid take on Batman. And I think Batman looks really, really fantastic in this. Uh, along those lines, you know, it's uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a no-brainer. Buckler's Captain Marvel. I'm trying to think if he ever did Captain Marvel again, but uh, his Captain Marvel is freaking fantastic, man. I love this. Uh, page four, that first panel of the. Uh, Royal Air Force plane shooting at Cap and Cap's doing a very like Christ-like pose yes. and the bullets are just bouncing off his chest and he, he's got such a sense of like joy in you know, like reveling in his powers I just love that pose it's, it's a great pose it's in black and white and uh, it, it's just I love that I think that's really really solid I love that second panel, the one that you pointed out, where Superman is just livid. He is He's looking at him like, hmm, you know? Yeah. He's just got that look on his face. Uh, let's see. I love the part about, you know, that the, that the JSAers, right out, they, they instantly realize why he's so upset. They they realize that it's this term that is continually used all through the newsreel, super Nazi, and that that would really bother Superman. I like that it does bother Superman. Superman is genuinely upset by this. He's he's very he's just not cool with you know his essentially his name being used this way, and I like. He has, uh, I'm trying to, I didn't make a note of what page it was on, but there's a, a, a thought bubble or something that he has essentially about the fact of he's tired of being sidelined by their inability to just storm right into Germany and just end this thing. Yeah. I like that because I've been waiting for that moment. You know, where where was that moment? I, I knew that there probably would be one eventually, or at least I was hoping that there would be. I couldn't remember if it actually did happen, though. But you would think that's a pretty natural thing that that we should get them at least one moment like that where, you know, Thomas went to great lengths to explain why, you know, Superman at the very least wouldn't just go in or why didn't the team, you know, once the team was formed, the all-star squadron and such powerful characters, you know, not only do we have Superman, we have Green Lantern, we have, you know, the Spectre, we have... Uh, Dr. Fate, we have all these powerful characters. Why the hell didn't they just all team up like they eventually do here and just storm into Germany and just end this friggin' thing? And, of course, you know, he, he explained that, why they couldn't do that. But I didn't really ever remember, like, a serious discussion or a serious examination of how would that make them feel that our boys are over there fighting and dying normal human beings for this war, yet you've got a guy like Superman who could end it in seconds and the best he can do is stay on the home front and deal with saboteurs and stuff. 
I mean, how would that make him feel? And here we finally get a, a look at that. And I like that moment a lot. Uh, let's see. Can Plastic Man really replicate? And I know that he can shape change. And I know he can change into different objects and things. But, I mean, I'm, I'm used to seeing him change into, like, a ball or a fire hydrant or something like that. You know, take the shape. But could he really replicate a Coke machine so close that, when somebody walked up to it to purchase something, they literally couldn't tell that it wasn't a real Coke machine. That just, you know, it's a little a, silly, but it makes for a funny little bit. It is. Yeah. I like, you know, flash is standing there going, that's funny. I can't find a place to put my dime. And Plas says, don't look too hard, speedy. Uh, what's which is else. I might have to find a place to put my rubberized fist. <laughs> so yes, it is a cute little moment, but, Stretch, uh, stretch my credibility just a little bit. <laughs> uh, my willing see. suspension of disbelief is only, goes only so far. Exactly. I don't know why. Maybe maybe because it resembles apparel. I'm not sure. Page 8. That, let's see, this would be the fifth. Not counting, or yes, I'm sorry, counting the inset picture with Superman and Plastic. It would be the fifth panel right there. I love that Batman. Mm-hmm. It's the panel where the team's just walking down the street, but Batman looks great right there. He, he's, I think he's very apparel in that moment. I just like the way the cape's setting on his shoulders and everything. It's really good looking Batman. Now, now as we've discussed before, and I agree with you, this is not exactly the Golden Age Superman. This is the Earth Two Superman, who in many ways is the Golden Age Superman, but he's not. So should he have heat vision? I wondered if that bugged you. Uh, yeah, actually, because in the Golden Age, very early on, he was using, like, eventually he would start using his X-ray vision as heat vision. Right. So by this point in 1942, I think we're right well into 1942 at this point. Yeah. You know, he would have that as an ability. Okay. Because I can remember stories like that as a kid before they started actually calling it heat vision. It was, you know, the heat of my x-rays, but I still thought that was a lot later than this. But I will profess my ignorance as to exactly when that started. So I was just curious. Uh, okay, this one, again, nitpicky, but see what you think on this one. Page 14. The president says that uh, he's had all footage of the super Nazi confiscated, you know, to protect. How does he word it here? He says, uh, as it is, I, as it is, far too many people will have seen that newsreel uh, to release it to uh, nationwide might cause a panic. And he's explaining why he had the, the, uh, newsreel confiscated and he says he regrets having to invoke the powers of wartime censorship i'm thinking weren't these guys just in a crowded movie house watching this at the beginning of the issue (laughs) it just seemed really strange thing for the president to say yeah you know you i don't want to use my powers to my my censorship powers to hide a newsreel but I'm going to lock up some japanese people (laughs) yeah so Page 15, that last panel, Superman dodging the shells. That's very Wayne boring, and I absolutely love it. I love that panel of Superman. 
I like him flying the way he is. I don't recall Superman flying that way very often, but whenever he does, I really like that pose. It's just that's a solid panel right there. Absolutely. Let's see, page. I just have a note here. It just says page seventeen with exclamation marks, uh, explanation marks. So let me see. Oh, okay, yes, this is the beginning of the fight. Oh my god, there is not a damn thing wrong with this page. No. From the first panel, which again looks very that reminds me of a Garcia Lopez image. Praise be his name, absolutely. Yep, streaking out the window, and then just coming up and just wham, just slams into Marvel. Now notice right there that three panel sequence at the bottom of page seventeen. Marvel's been knocked silly, right? Yeah, and it's just kind of limply flying through the air, just by the power of having been clobbered by Superman. And then the next panel, he's kind of rolling on his side. And then that that last panel, this reminds me of a skater, like a hockey skater, like a figure skater, like using like the ice to let, and their skates like curve around to a stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he's literally like skating in the air to a stop. That is fantastic. I love that. That that's a really neat dynamic that uh, the artist did there. I, I think that's really cool. It goes without saying that the the fight is just spectacular. But what I like most about this, and this is going to seem really odd for me to say this, I know, but there's something about seeing Superman get the crap kicked out of him that I never get old of. I love the guy. He's my hero. But every once in a while, this this is really cool because... For whatever reason, you don't see it a whole lot. Superman does fight a lot of business suit guys, or or you know, so many of his rogues gallery are like, you know, the Toy Man or, or guys like that. That you know, or they're just, throwing science at him, basically. Yeah, like they're they're sending science. robots or whatever. Yeah. And it, it is rare uh, that he does get into kind of a bare knuckle fist fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is. Not only a bare knuckle fist, it's dirty. I'm, yeah, these guys are just wailing on each other. What I really like about this is that Cap not only beats him, he clearly beats him. I mean, he's stronger than Superman, and he clobbers the hell out of him. I like that in this. I like this that Cap is is actually stronger than Superman in this particular story. I think it adds a real dynamic to it. Superman's actually humbled in this story. And I, I enjoy that. I, it's, it's a different kind of, uh, fight for these two. It's a different kind of fight for Superman really to be yeah. clearly beaten this way. And uh, I really, I enjoy it. It's one of the things I've always liked best about this particular story. Uh, let's see page 22, that fourth panel. I just like that panel of cap streaking away. There's something really, really neat about that. The, his pose reminds me of another artist, but I, I can't place it for the life of me, but it, I, it looks a little like, uh, what is his name? Tom Mandrake. You're right. You're right. It does. Especially with the shading. When did Mandrake draw? He drew cap for something. What did he draw? Yeah, uh, Shazam, a new beginning. Oh, duh. yeah, duh. That's right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think that is what it's reminding me of. I like that a lot. Let's see, page 23, third. I just like that panel of, of Batman screaming at Lantern to stop. Again, that's yeah. a 
that's somebody else's Batman, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's, you know, clearly it's these two drawing it, but it, it, it just reminds me of, like, yeah, it's uh, a classic Adams. Batman. Adams or Apero. Or yeah. Or, or uh, Giordano, yeah. But just a classic Batman. I really like that. Um, I just want to point out that Batman and Wonder Woman, I like the dynamic of the two of them in this, and it just, to me, it lends into that idea that, you know, that, that was hardly a new dynamic there in the, when was that, in the 90s, when it looked for a time like the two of them might hook up. Yeah. That, you know, it was, this that, that sort of thing was happening as, at least as far back as this, where they seem to be getting along rather capitally, you know, as they're flying in the uh, invisible plane together. <laughs> at the same time, it looks like he's like, Damn it! I have to drive her home. She's got a headache again. <laughs> yeah, it does actually. <laughs> oh, not tonight, Batman. <laughs> That's pretty much all I have on this, as far as actual notes. Uh, again, you know, last page, last uh, last panel that Captain Marvel Junior. and uh, and Mary are, are making the scene. It's like, oh boy, it ain't over yet. I like See, that. The thing about Mary and and Freddie, to me, and, and and it's it's the it's the thing where Captain Marvel really had a leg up on Superman because he had a family from the beginning, pretty much. Yep. It would take Superman quite a while, and you would never until the nineties, you would never have Superman, Superboy, and Supergirl all working together. Right. And that's why I think the Marvel family is, is, is conceptually... Now, I haven't read a whole lot of their Golden Age adventures, so I can't make a judgment call on that. But on a conceptual level, I love the idea that they are a family. And mm-hmm. that there there is a, a younger male, there's a younger female, and there's the dad, basically. Mm-hmm. And... You're, and just their costumes are awesome. Even when they turn Mary's costume white... Which I think served uh, yeah. visually to distinguish them. I liked that, yeah. Uh, I just think that that's one of the areas where, where, where Captain Marvel really has it over Superman. Is that, you know, even though Superman had a family, it was added later. It wasn't something from the beginning. Whereas <laughs> with these characters, it was pretty early on. And not only that, these guys were getting their own features. And Captain Marvel Jr. would get his own book. So, you know, it's it's just the popularity of these characters really, it doesn't translate into, wow, they're automatically going to be given titles and such at all, really. And I think that DC, even during this time period, was really struggling with what to do with these characters on an ongoing basis. Right. Uh, I think Ordway came closest in the modern era of making the idea work for an extended period of time. Uh, you know, after the crisis, they tried to, I think they tried to modernize it too much. And I don't really blame them because that was kind of the hallmark of that era and the ideas that Roy Thomas had on expanding the, the, the Marvels beyond just Captain Marvel were a little weird, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe, this is going to sound weird. It may be one of those ideas that just works best in the original time period of which it was published. Even though I, you know... Now, that is me not having read all of the Don Newton World's Finest Captain Marvel strips. Those those are kind of a, a strange beast because I think they try very hard 
to keep a lot of the original flavor and to be very faithful to the original source material. But I honestly think that that stuff, and it's kind of scattered all over the place. It started in the last two issues of Shazam proper, and then it went into World's Finest, and I think it finally finished up in Adventure Comics, if I'm not mistaken. And and then then again, when that actually finished... An adventure may not have been everything. There may still have been unpublished stories that I'm not even sure ever saw print. But I enjoyed that stuff. Maybe it was because of the art. I can't remember that the stories were necessarily more, um, I don't want to say adult, but you know, more mature or, or if it was just the art gave it the illusion of having more maturity because it was definitely a more matured art style, you know, with Newton and, um, wise. And I'm trying to think there was somebody else that worked on that stuff too, but I enjoy it. I, I really enjoy it a lot because it doesn't seem quite as juvenile as, the stuff that came prior to it. I mean, I like that stuff, but I, I, I really can't read much of it at all because it's it just, not only is it very juvenile, but a lot of it's very simple and very strange. I mean, very, very, but I can definitely see where it would appeal to kids because I could read that stuff when I was a kid and just thrill to it. And I thought it was fantastic because I, you know, I never, of course, had any of the original stuff, but they reprinted them in those large, oversized books back in the 70s, you know, limited collector's edition. And I had every one of them, especially like the one that had, you know, TV's Captain Marvel on the cover of it. I loved that thing. I read it till it fall, fell apart. So, I mean, definitely reaching that child market. And it's easy for me to see why, for a time in the 40s, he was more successful than Superman. So I sold him because of that kid appeal. But you get much beyond, you know, early childhood age where you want a little more meat to your stories, that Captain Marvel is not your guy in that era. And so I think that's why they have tried so many times to, you know, to keep the flavor, but to update. And, man, that's, it's a tough balancing act because it's one of those things where you don't want to alienate the fans of the guy, but it's like, come on, let me do something new with it because it just isn't really working. How are you going to reach new fans? Exactly. Yeah. And, f- and fans of the more contemporary storytelling, whether it, it is the eighties, the nineties or today, suddenly I sound like a radio commercial. <laughs> I apologize for that. But, but no, seriously, I mean, when I was 13, 12, 13 years old, the new, Shazam A New Beginning really spoke to me because it felt really of the time. Right. You know, and it was, you know, and Billy was a little older. He was like 15 years old. Whereas if Roy Thomas had said, well, I'm just going to do everything in the contemporary era just like they did it in the 40s, I don't know if it would have had, you know, as, as much of an impact because the 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 sad truth of it, it is is that sometimes a character works best in a certain time period and may not function as well as he or she existed in that time period in the present. You know, one of the things I see a lot in fandom, and I'm not condemning it because I can understand it, is why don't we go back to 
the version of the character that I liked. And the thing is, is that you got into that character at a very specific time, may also maybe a very specific time of your life, where your sensibilities might not be the same now, so it may not reach you, and right. it's definitely not going to reach a contemporary audience. The reason, one of the main reasons I got into the Burn Superman is that it felt like a Superman for me. Right. It wasn't an older ver. It wasn't the... And, and this is... God knows we're not going to insult Kurt Swan ever again. But, you know, that may not have grabbed me at, at 11 years old the way John Byrne did. Right. And that version of Superman is not going to grab a 12-year-old today. Or maybe it will. But, I, you know, I've just got to think that using my own logic and applying it further, it may not work as well. So I'm not saying that what they're doing today is going to do it either, but that, that, that's a, that's a rant for another time. Well, see, that's the funny thing is that it, it occurred to me about midway through my statement that, Hmm, does that make me a complete hypocrite? Because I can, you know, I, I completely agree with them trying to do that with Captain, you know, updating. I mean, Captain Marvel, looking at the the guy and going, you know, what worked in the forties just isn't going to work in the seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands. You know, for this character, it, it's a different world. It's a different audience. So, does that make me a hypocrite when it just, I mean, annoys me to the incredible degree that it does when they do that with Superman? Because essentially, they're trying to do the same thing. Sort of. But the problem is, is that I've never seen Superman. I mean, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if, if your impression is different or whatever. But I mean, do you think Superman say, especially like say the eighties burn stuff. I mean, I don't see that as like infantile or, or aimed just at one audience. No, you no, know, it was, kids. it was aimed at a, it was aimed at a broader audience. And the problem is, is that, the reality of his Superman was different from what people described it as. I mean, right. everyone said it's like he's super yuppie and he's a toady of Reagan, and that wasn't it at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, That's yes, there was a sequence where he told Reagan, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what you say. I don't like it." You know, that's not being a toady of Reagan. That's being respectful of the office, exactly. Basically. exactly. And. You know, Burns Superman wasn't like that. And I, I think with, with both Captain Marvel and Superman is the thing where they're missing the boat is is that they're focusing so much on trying to make these characters appeal to a contemporary audience that they're missing the point that the the trick is to give them the sense of wonder, but set it in a contemporary time. Right. And Captain Marvel especially, he is a character that is ultimate wish fulfillment. Mm -hmm. More so than Superman. Because Captain Marvel is, with one magic word, you're a superhero. And, you know, if you're younger, you're a kid becoming an adult, an adult, and an, and an adult. Boy, that's harder to say than I thought it was going to be. But... <laughs> So I think the key to that is to use that as your hook and make it about how awesome it is to be this. Not, well, to be fair, 
the new version warm I warmed up to it, but it wasn't exactly what I would call the version I would want to see. Right. But you know, making him kind of a teenager in an adult body and what does that really mean and taking that to a logical realistic I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is is to make it high adventure. Because I think the Marvel movies have proven that an audience will accept that. You know, Avengers especially. Right. It was nothing but high superhero adventure. So, not trying to get on a soapbox here, and especially trying not trying to get on too much of a tangent about this, but it's just, it seems to me that Captain Marvel can work, they just have never figured out a way to do it. For a long period of time power of Shazam notwithstanding. You know, they, they've bandied around the idea of a Captain Marvel movie for a long, long time. And I don't know that this idea would necessarily work for comics, especially long term. But I always thought the way to handle if they were ever going to do a Captain Marvel movie would be basically to have some sort of amalgamation of like Superman not necessarily like Superman the movie per se, because I think that's a little too serious for a Captain Marvel movie, which seems like a strange thing to say, but I, I think Cap should be even more lighthearted than that. But basically, a, a superhero movie, you know, the, the standard superhero formula, so to speak, and the movie Big with yeah, Tom Hanks. You, I was about to say the exact same thing if you weren't going to. Yeah. I the think superhero that, version of Big. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, take the movie Big, and you know, if, if you could interject, you know, some serious superhero moments in there. I, I mean, by serious, I mean you know, special effects and you yeah, know, have good the big acting. fights. Yeah, and, you know, your villain is Doctor Savannah and Black Adam. I mean that. I, I, you know, I think Mister Mind would be fun in the Monster Society of Evil eventually down the road, but you know. I think, really, your blueprint for a Captain Marvel movie is the Power of Shazam graphic novel. Yeah. From beginning to end, that thing felt like Captain Marvel the movie to mm-hmm. me. I agree. And it has everything you want. It has, like, the, the, the intro in Egypt, so you have, like, a fun little period thing going on there. You have a stylistic Fawcett city. You have a great villain in Black Adam. And they're just beating the crap out of each other through most of that story so everything's there it's just again everyone wants to complicate it yep. because they assume the audience won't accept it but again the marvel films have proven what the audience will accept and now i think the problem is is that they're like oh okay they did it now we have to be different just so we're not accused of copying them whereas i think really and truly with the way the general audiences with superheroes, I don't think they care. I don't think they see a difference between a DC and a Marvel character. I think they just see superheroes. Right. Because I, you know, I have this conversation constantly with people. It's like, well, is it... Well, why can't Superman and Spider-Man meet? Well, they're published by different companies. They are? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Apparently that branding isn't as working as much as both companies want it to. Right. So, but anyways, <sighs> that was fun. 
Well, lastly, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's been a while since we've had one oh, of those. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was hoping for out of this episode. The last thing I had on this, and this this could possibly <laughs> spawn a whole long uh, whole long tangent in itself, so maybe we should discuss it more at, at the tail end of the conclusion of this story, but I just, it's always where my mind goes on these sorts of things. Not to spoil ahead, but, you know, we, we know that eventually Earth 2 goes away, and after the crisis, things are radically different with the the history and the backstory of the DC universe. And these are the kind of things where I would go back and I would I would see and read a, a story like this one and try to imagine how did it play out in post-crisis continuity? Because so many of the key characters in this story now don't, you know, didn't exist. You know, there was there was never a Batman, Wonder Woman, or uh, or Superman for this particular story. Captain Marvel and the Marvel family wouldn't have existed in the forties now. So, was there even a story? Who did Hitler get if he got anybody? And I just think that that sort of thing is a lot of fun to think about. And it's a shame that uh, somebody, you know, especially Roy Thomas, never really got a, a chance to explore that. Huh. I would have just assumed this was one of those stories that never quite happened. Yeah, see, that's what I'm in, thinking, too. In the post-crisis too. world. And, and, I, and I hate to say that, but, uh, you know, mainly because... You know, it, it seems like you're kind of taking the fun out of it at that point. But no, all, all things being equal, some stories just can't happen anymore, right? You know, they, they you know, he had to totally redo the JSA's origin because you had to take Superman and Batman out of it. Now, to be fair, that story isn't really impacted all that much by taking them out of it because you still have the main justice society members there right but this one too many of the key players are off the table i mean yeah you could have iron monroe and then you could create like an amalgam like a new character that's kind of like captain marvel and they're the ones who fought in england but that's just that's trying too hard and that's not as fun as this, because because the, the the key to this is it's Superman versus Captain Marvel exactly, and when yeah. you can't use either of those, eh, you might as well just skip this one, right? So, but that I would always, be my opinion. I did always like to think about that though, with you know, especially with uh, with Superman stories. Like, okay, how did this how did this all go down when Superman wasn't there? But that's oh. pretty much all I've got on this one. Alrighty, really the only difference in ads uh, between this one and the Infinity Incorporated issue is the middle page. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a subscription ad, and the two books there are Tales of the Legion of Superheroes number 314, but especially that Detective Comics number 541. This is right after Jason Todd fully assumed the uh, role of... Robin, and this was a great era where Colin was drawing bat- uh, Detective and Doug Minch was writing it. And yeah, just skip the Green Arrow backups because they're, <laughs> they're kind of lame, actually. I've always so had a, a oh. soft spot for this particular issue because uh, shortly before I left to go into basic training for the Air Force, 
I had gone to Twilight Book and Game Emporium in Syracuse, which I'm led to believe doesn't exist anymore, which makes me very, very sad that that place isn't around anymore, if, if that's really true. Anyway, I went there and, uh, and I bought up a ton of back issues uh, to take with me because thanks to my wonderful recruiter, I had more of an impression that I was going to like some sort of like country club retreat or something than actual like what basic training really turned out to be. <laughs> so I took, you know, books and comics and cassette tapes to listen to and all this stuff that ended up immediately being confiscated and locked up for the entire time that I was there. Oh. But one of the comics that I had, uh, I think I remember this just because it was the one that was on top of the stack, was this very issue of Detective Comics. And I've always liked that one because it has the, the bat plane right there on the cover, which I thought was cool. You were lied to. Uh, yes, I was. But, you know... <laughs> You can't hold it against them. It's kind of their job, I guess. <laughs> Alrighty, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Infinity Incorporated. Sweet. Kalabak to Zod. It is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's who? The definitive podcast of the DC universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. together from the disparate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled ryan the toy geek scott the award-winning radio host jeff scott's minion Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us 
at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Alrighty, we are back with Infinity Incorporated number five, Dead Men's Bluff. You can kind of take that bluff as two different ways, as a, <laughs> like a geological structure or, you know, what you do when you're trying to fake somebody out. This was released on May 24th, 1984, so technically it came out a week before the All-Star Squadron issue. <laughs> this is part five of the Generations Saga and Roy Thomas was the writer-editor. Jerry Ordway and Mike Macklin were the artists and co-creators three, which I kind of like. Anthony Tollin and Adrian Roy were the colorists. Cody was the letterer. And Dan Thomas is uh, credited as the co-plotter. It is the morning of December 26th, 1983 which apparently is unlike all others, which is a pretty good description, as the Silver Scarab discovers his girlfriend Fury tearing up some snow-covered landscape. She nearly hits him with a boulder, but thanks to his solar-powered blast, his description, the rock doesn't reach its intended target. What follows can be best described as a lover spat, and by spat, I mean Hector tries to convince Lyda to come with him, they tussle, Lyda kicks him in the face, and suddenly Hector is telling everybody that he walked into a door. <laughs> Actually, this snaps Lyda out of her fury. See what I did there? And she agrees to go back to the others with Hector, but she warns that if it turns out that the Alter Humanite is responsible for the death of her mother, there will be hell to pay. Much like, you know, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> As they leave, Hector gets the feeling that they are being watched. Meanwhile, at the sheriff's station, the rest of the group, minus Jade and Obsidian, are busy getting the runaround from the sheriff. Seems that since they can't prove they are blood relatives of the dead JSA members, they can't take the bodies. In the midst of the bickering, a newscast featuring Andrew Vinson, Power Girl's would-be boyfriend, lets the Infinidors and us know that an invisible dome has appeared around Metropolis... And that Superman is nowhere to be found. Well, he's fighting Captain Marvel. We just saw that. <laughs> ah, <Power> this is <laughs> years later. Years later. Power Girl heads home to see what she can do about that, leaving Nuclon, Northwind, and Huntress to take a bunch of crap from the sheriff. At a nearby church, Obsidian lights a candle for his father and the other fallen JSA members. He and Jade speak with a priest who prays with them. The sheriff takes Nuclon and crew to see male Zarniak and gets accosted by the press on the way over. The mayor wants permission to perform an autopsy on the dead heroes. Norda calls Shiera Hall, who is pretty clear about not having her husband or his comrades carved up. Dr. Midnight takes the phone and says that they need to prevent the autopsy, and the Flash will explain everything when he arrives. Just then, the Flash arrives and after a quick breather <laughs> and having the mayor ask for his autograph he tells them that his teammates probably aren't dead it seems that the mysterious stream named koihaha that's funny or the stream of ruthlessness as it is called you know more commonly is quite real in 1947, a tormented stutterer named Calvin Stimes drowned five of his old frat <laughs> brothers for a prank they played on him 20 years before. Calvin, 
and every time I hear stuttering, I think of uh, a fish called Wanda. Right. Ken's coming to kill me. Calvin knew that they would revive what would be totally free of conscience. He tipped off the JSA, and wouldn't you know it, the Adam and Johnny Thunder were out sick that day. Oh, darn. So that Batman and Superman helped the team defeat the five frat boys that had taken such names as the Wrecker and the Black Rider. Green Lantern tries to stop Stimes, but fails. This turned out to be the briefest of setbacks, as Calvin knew that his former frat brothers would come back to the stream to drink from its waters once again, and he was so prepared that he blew out the cave when they entered, which did a bang-up job of not only trapping them, but Calvin as well. The JSA, excuse me, the Flash believes that the stream is running again, which is good news for the supposedly dead JSAers. Well, it would be if the mayor hadn't ordered the autopsies anyways. Da-da-da-da! <laughs> it's okay though when the medical examiners tried to cut a very naked wonder woman yeah. she, she revived and started tossing people around like a mad woman the flash manages to save the civilians but is soon taken out by the rest of the revived and conscience free robin hawkman adam and green lantern the infinitors arrive but they don't fare much better than the flash Meanwhile, two men guide Brainwave Jr. and the Star-Spangled Kid into the mountains outside of town. Apparently, they believe they saw a Bigfoot, but before they can get much further, an avalanche knocks the two men off the mountain into certain death. The Kid and Brainwave save them and are mighty suspicious as the avalanche was started thanks to some dynamite. The heroes are pretty sure they know who they're dealing with, and soon enough, the ultra-humanite in all his big-headed, monkey-bodied glory appears. <laughs> And says he is at their service. Funeral service, that is. To be continued. Naked Wonder Woman. It's it's marked this in Overstreet. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's the big thing about this. Uh, historical notes from All-Star Companion Volume 4, which uh, you're almost there. I have one through three. I still need to get me a number four. Yeah, it's okay. I got it. Uh, oh, we're, we're really close to the issue where Superman beats the piss out of Power Girl for about <laughs> 22 pages. I'm ready for that, actually. She's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> this issue also includes, uh, includes, includes a pinup and vital st- uh, data sheet of Jade by Mike Macklin and Roy Thomas. Mayor Zarniak is a dead ringer for comedy legend Jonathan Winters. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. And according to this story, the feds gave the JSA special status years ago, so it's even against the law to unmask a hurt or deceased JSA. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love that. That is awesome. And it's a great way to explain, hey, how... um. How are you not unmasking people when they're unconscious? Well, it's against the law. Okay, then. I think that's so. Uh, what are I think that's a really good explanation. I like that. So, what are your notes on this issue? I don't have a whole lot of them on this one. Um, I have just a few here. Let's see. I don't. I didn't even put a specific page reference for this. There's somewhere in here where. I don't know if it's... Here it is. Page 6, last panel. 
Huntress is thinking to herself, she says, being Batman's daughter, I'm related to his adopted ward, blah, blah, blah. And she goes on thinking others. So on this earth, Robin was adopted by Batman. I just thought that was worth noting. I don't know that I ever really noted that or we noted that before, had we? No, I don't think we had. That that is interesting. Because I think that it either never happened on Earth-1 or they... It, it vacillated like sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't because I specifically recall in Teen Titans number 50 where Donna Troy gets married Dick actually confronts Bruce Wayne as to why did you never adopt me uh-huh. and I think it was because he had recently adopted um, Jason Todd yes. if I recall so yeah I just thought that was worth noting Um Every time Norda speaks, I, I'm just shut up, <laughs> shut up. God, I, I'm sorry. I God, I really He's don't. He's the like most this useless character. member of the team. I mean, we've we're gonna say this throughout the entire run when he's a part of the book. I don't care about Norda. I never care about no. Norda. No, I don't. The one that spurred it is that same panel where after after Huntress finishes up her her thought in her head. Uh, Norda says, the Hawkman was like a father to me, but that is all. And then he thinks to himself, if only he had been more like one to his natural son, Hector. And I'm like, shut up. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, like you were saying, you and I have been listening to back to, you know, old episodes of the show just to kind of get back in the groove and to remember things that we had talked about, you know, and things that maybe we want to touch back upon uh, that we hinted at, you know, in old episodes, that sort of thing. And it was funny listening to us talk about, and gee, it'll be really cool when we get to Infinity Incorporated and we were, we were thinking about the different characters and everything. And you can clearly hear me say in whatever early ep- uh, episode that was that my least favorite member was Brainwave Jr. And yes, I have no love for Brainwave Jr. I had completely forgotten about Norda. I mean, because <laughs> I, I just never liked him, so I, I, he didn't even occur to me. But it's like, yeah, Norda sucks. He's, he is my least favorite. It would have actually been fun to see uh, him and, and Brainwave Jr. have to, like, fight to the death in, like, some <laughs> deathmatch battle or something for, like... We'll see suck. a mock time music playing <laughs> in the background. <laughs> it's the Battle of the Suck <laughs> Infinitors. Yeah. It's, it's the battle no one cares about. Right. <laughs> um, Jonathan Winters isn't the only celebrity that appears in this either, because the sheriff and his deputy are uh, Andy Griffith and what's-his-face Don Knotts from Mayberry. <laughs> and I kind of got the impression that some of the other people that you see in this may have, have supposed to have been somebody famous too, but I couldn't quite place them. The guy that's talking to um, Andrew Vincent on the TV kind of looks like Dan Rather, but I'm not sure it really is. And then the priest to me looks like the priest from I don't know some old movie like I don't know like the bells of St. Mary or something like that so I've never seen it yeah I'm not sure for for a fact but I don't know why this bugs me because if this was a movie it would clearly have to be cast right and you'd probably get at least a few faces that you recognize but when they do this sort of thing in comics, it always bothers me. I, I really can't explain. It kind of takes you out of the story yeah, a little bit. It, it does. Uh, it, it's like, you know, when, when Gary Frank was drawing Superman, it was distracting that he looked like Christopher Reeve. 
Because then you're not thinking about Superman in the story. You're thinking about Christopher Reeve right. and him as Superman. And it's two separate things. Right. So I appreciate the sentiment, but ultimately it became just completely distracting throughout that entire run. I can't exactly say that I like this issue. I don't dislike it. It's just kind of meh. But I really liked the church scene. Uh, I liked it on several levels. For one, I really liked the art. It's very detailed in this part, especially the, the panel where Todd is lighting the candle for, uh, for his father and for the other uh, uh, JSAers. I just really like the detail in that particular panel. But it is a nice scene. It's very moving. You can see that, uh, that Obsidian is very devout in his beliefs and everything. And... On the top of page eight, that first panel, Jade, who I don't usually find very attractive or anything, she looks really nice in that panel. It's just nicely drawn there. I think that's a really good I'll shot. agree with that. Um, let's see. I have a note here. Page 14, panel one, but I don't know what that's all about. Let's see. Page 14, panel one. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is this one. Okay, so he, the, the Flash is leaning down and taking a sample from the river. And he said, this water contains an amazing amount of free oxygen. That must explain why no one actually drowned in it. Um, no. (laughs) That's not quite how it works. No, 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 no. I don't care how oxygen-enriched your water is. Try try breathing it sometime. It ain't going to work out so well for you. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. This isn't that that, uh, James Cameron movie, The Abyss. Right, right. Uh, that was just silly. Uh, very next panel. He says, also, there are strong traces of a rare drug, habis adica or indica or whatever, however. And by the way, it looks like he's holding a, a Hershey bar there in his hand. If, if you look at it, you got anybody want a Toblerone? <laughs> and, uh, and Dr. Midnight's behind him. And Dr. Midnight says, I've heard of it. It's been known to deaden a man's conscience. Make him lose all sense of right and wrong. I'm thinking, isn't this what Honeywell smokes? <laughs> and the fourth wow. panel. God, I'm not still on the same page. Yeah, he, 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 he doesn't listen to the show, so that's okay. <laughs> the fourth panel there, uh, Superman just dropping that big old rock. I, there's something about that that I really like. It's just really cool. I just I was just noting the art in that particular one. Really, the only other thing I got on this is I, I'm just going to go back to being like 12 years old and uh, page 15, Naked Wonder Woman. And I love the third panel there. So the yeah. doctor's ready. The female doctor is about to start the actual autopsy. She's got Naked Wonder Woman laying there. She has a male assistant. And he is clearly just looking at Wonder Woman's crotch as she's laying there on the table. There's just something really amusing about that particular panel. I wow, got a kick out she, of that. Uh, she goes Brazilian. Very inter- interesting. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you got uh, not only naked Wonder Woman, but then naked, like, throwing people around being all, like, super villainy Wonder Woman. It's like, damn, I wish they'd make this into a movie. You know, Linda Carter's holding pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone loves Linda Carter. Um, oddly enough, my notes on this 
the biggest note is the art is just gorgeous throughout the entire issue. Mm-hmm. From the cover, from the first page to the last page, this is why I love Jerry Ordway drawing these characters. Because he makes them look so dynamic. Much like Rich Buckler did, but to me, Ordway is edges out Buckler by a little bit. And, and just like the little details, like on the cover... Green Lantern's holding uh, the Flash, who he's who they've apparently just beaten into unconsciousness. His shirt's getting pulled out of his pants, mm-hmm. and that's actually it's it, it's a small little detail, but it's just like wow, that that's a real shirt, that's real cloth, right? You know, it it actually folds and stuff. And I always thought that Ordway, outside of George Perez, drew the best Earth Two Robin. Uh, just he just somehow could capture that character. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the first sequence, wow, she's really knocking her boyfriend around. This is like a Lifetime movie in the making. <laughs> um, Dear sheriffs from small Colorado town, uh, these are superheroes. Two of them in your office, Power Girl and Huntress, have saved the planet on several occasions. Maybe you should give them a little more uh, respect. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that uh, sequence page- was not... Not well written, I didn't believe. Page six, bottom panel, the Huntress looks absolutely beautiful sitting there, mm-hmm. hand against her. Oh, God, she just looks so good in that panel. Um, you're right about Jade. Jade looks, uh, especially on page seven when she's praying, is just absolutely stunning. Uh, <laughs> because the, the mayor looked like Jonathan Winters, I heard Jonathan Winters' voice. Yeah. So... Uh, is it me on page nine, or did Henry Peter Gyrick dye his hair blonde and, and <laughs> infiltrate the uh, the DC universe? I kept waiting for him to walk into like a table or something, and it just didn't happen. It disappoints me so no, much. No, because he has that he has that heat vision thing going. Oh, right? good lord! <laughs> his infrared vision guides him around the room. Uh, yeah, uh, Ordway really makes the Flash look good in this entire issue. Throughout the whole thing, just like on page eleven, that second panel, the helmet, everything just comes together. I like that shot uh, on the prior page, that last panel where he's catching his breath and he's yes. he's got his hands splayed out with his fingers splayed. I just like that. Uh, it's it's a very natural human being pose. Like it, it just just give me a minute. I just need to catch my breath. I love that. It is it's the flat. What's really awesome about the flashback sequence is that all the characters are visibly younger. Mm-hmm. Like there's a real difference. It's not subtle even, but it just it just makes it seem like okay, this is them younger. Like on page fourteen, you have the Flash looking all young and spry, and then on the <laughs> on the fifth panel is him going her. <laughs> so sorry, that was mean. Um. This shows, page 15, shows that this is a direct market-only book. Because I don't think they would have let a pretty much naked Wonder Woman in a newsstand edition book. Right. I think they would have uh, they would have done something about that. But, no, uh, bottom of page 16, all of the... JSAers waking up and putting on their uniforms and stuff and going to kick some ass. That's a great image. Uh, just 
just the the fight in the in the, in the morgue is just fantastic, and then it kind of loses me a little bit in the last section with with Brainwave Junior and Star Spangled Kid because you got one character that I really like and one character I just feel really bad for. Um, <laughs> but it leads to that awesome cliffhanger page on the with 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 the the monkeyed uh, ultra humanoid coming out like <laughs> he looks like the Bumble from. From Rudolph, though. <laughs> but no, just... I think I liked this a little better than you did, but I, it, the story is just ramping up. The The artwork is just gorgeous. And it just makes me really excited for the next issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have as much to say about this one as the, the All-Star issue. Uh, the, the, um, the Mike Macklin profile page is rather awesome. Uh, it's this beautiful shot of Jade, you know, fighting her father, which I really liked. Uh, but that's pretty much all I got. Uh, ads for this issue in the last. We've got a Superpowers ad. I will not go into that again because I know I went on and on about that in the other episodes. <laughs> uh, boring Oreo ad <laughs> in this one. At least I think so. Which, uh, Did you... where is that? I'm not... Oh, yes. Yeah, the, the color me in. Yeah, that one's... I, I have recently discovered, thanks to Robert J. Kelly of the Fire and Water podcast, that the Warlord Remco toys go for like $80 to $100 on eBay. Holy cow! Even uh, Machisti, who no one cared about, <laughs> goes for a lot of money. So... Yeah, that, that, that was kind of interesting to find out. I guess because they were only really sold through Kmart, there's right. probably not a lot out there at this point. Yeah. Until we uncover the warehouse full of them. I mean, I remember them being on... I can remember seeing them, like, you know, on the on the hooks and everything in the toy section at Kmart. I just had no idea who he was. The, uh... The Don't Miss an Issue, the new DC, There's No Stopping Us Now subscription ad in the middle... I had completely forgotten that Dan Jurgens drew Warlord for a while. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's interesting to know. And uh, we'll be talking about that Legion book there in a minute or two. What else we got here? We got Jem, Son of Boredom. <laughs> I, I just have no desire to ever read that series, and yet I own it. I had it all at one time, and uh, and now I only have like scattered issues of it. But I know Superman appeared in it, and w- at one point, Colin had an interesting take on Superman. Mm-hmm. I-, I like his Superman. I really do. There is a subscribe to the Omega Man and get this poster. Nah, uh, no thanks. And you- <laughs> the what? I said no thanks. <laughs> and uh, you will also receive absolutely free Omega Man Annual Number One. And right now, I am hearing Shag and Rob arguing over the Omega Men, because over on the Who's Who podcast, uh, Rob kind of likes the Omega Men, and Shag doesn't. So there's a lot of fighting there. It's funny, because one of my favorite Superman stories is, I always thought it was the first appearance of the Mega, Omega Men. I think it's actually the second, but it's uh, yep. it's part of that story where Superman got split into two and and neither one was you know very powerful they you know they basically had like one of them had the ability to fly the other one had the invulnerability that sort of thing and uh it's a great story it just happened happened to have the uh omega men show up in it 
And so I liked them in that particular story. But beyond that, I, I never can remember them being terribly exciting. And uh, I even have their uh, – years later, I ended up getting their first appearance in uh, Green Lantern. And I didn't think very much of that one either. So <laughs> I think the only issues I have now of the actual Omega Men series proper were, uh, were the Crisis crossover issues, I think. I picked up an entire run in fifty cent box. Wow, fifty cent box. So I, I just, I have it. The only one I had to pay more than fifty cents for was number three. Oh, so Lobo! You know what? I, I must have more now that you say that because I know I have like the first. I think it's like the first three appearances of Lobo were in uh, that title, and I know I have those, or at least I did, unless I sold them off. So yeah, I guess I had I'd, to pay like five bucks for that. But <laughs> why? That, because it was the first appearance of Lobo. No, I mean, why? Why? Why would you? Why would you even want? Because I because I needed it to fill the hole. Oh, all right. I thought maybe you were going to tell me you were like a secret Lobo, you know, like a closet Lobo fan or something. No, I'm I'm not a hater. I'm not a lover. I'm just a eh, Lobo. Okay, that's good. I always just like to throw, you know, I used to, I mean, like to throw it in, in fanboys' faces back at the height of Lobo mania, you know, where everybody was just crazy for Lobo that, come on, you know, his first appearance in, in that, third, you know, number three issue, he was like, what is he, in like a pink, like, yeah. clown outfit <laughs> or something. He just looked ridiculous. I was like, this is your hero right here, so don't give me any grief. <laughs> well, to... uh to round out the lackluster ads in this month, and they are lackluster. We got a Burger Time ad. Yay. Oh, I like Burger Time, but I think we've talked about that before, too. To round out the episode, we're going to hop into Rip Hunter's Time Machine over at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about here, but there's only a few that I really want to touch on. Uh, that Batman family... Family? Uh, that Batman Family Best of DC number 51 has a great cover. Who is that? Let me see. I'm going to blow it up here. It is... Is that Hannigan? Oh, yeah, it is. Ed, it Ed, is Ed Hannigan. Yeah, I don't have that particular one. Even Alfred like... looks like he's ready to kick some ass. <laughs> he does, actually. Yeah, I like that. I don't uh, I don't think I have that particular... I think I have all the stories that are in it, but I don't have that particular uh, Best of DC. I... I have a lot of issues of that, but it's scattered. You know, I didn't buy every issue as it came out. And now they're expensive. Uh, so in uh, DC Comics Presents number 72, you have the Phantom Stranger and the Joker. That looks kind of awesome. <laughs> I have that one. I don't remember a thing about it. I think the art's really good, though. Let's see. Who is the artist on that? Oh, it's Alex uh, Alex Saviak. Now, New Teen Titans number one, the Baxter series, comes out this month. That is not a very good introductory story. I wasn't really impressed with that book. It's Trigon, quite isn't some it? Time. Yeah, it's like the return of Trigon and blah, blah, blah. Superman makes a, a cameo in it, though. I did like that part. Because typically, with those, that's one of the things that used to really bug me about the Titans is they would have those stories that that happened on like a big scale, you know, like all of New York was in danger. Sometimes all the world was in danger. And I'm sorry, I, I know I'm a, a I'm a huge Superman fan, and maybe I think about this sort of thing too often. But every time something like that happens in the DC universe, my first thought is always, where the hell is Superman? 
And in that particular story, I really liked it because it actually showed you where Superman was while Triton or Titan, Triton, whatever the hell his name is. Well, you know, he's tearing up New York or, or actually I think the it may have been a global thing at that. I can't remember. But anyway, the, my point was is it actually showed you where Superman was and it turned out he had actually been incapacitated by the same thing that was taking everybody else out. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, we have uh skipping ahead a couple bit. We have the Batman number 374 awesome cover with Batman fighting Penguin. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a good era of Batman. That's Newton, the, isn't it? Don? Yes, it is. Yeah. Love that cover. Superman number 398, which has this really great cover of all these people kind of floating and the kid like turning into Superman. And then you open it up and it, it's Kurt Swan artwork. And it's just... <laughs> and the only reason I say that is I'm not insulting Kurt Swan. It's just this is this is a really early book for me in my collecting when I was 13, 12, 13 years old, uh, the kid in my neighborhood, Wang Chung, yes, get the laughing out of the way, uh, who was really the the kind of, the guy that kind of introduced me to comic shops and trading comics and all that. This was one of the books I traded with him and, and got, and I remember being really excited because the cover looks great, and the story is actually kind of cool. It's just... I remember being disappointed at 12 that the cover looked really cool and then the artwork inside wasn't as cool. So <laughs> the Blue Devil number three has Metallo in it because Blue Devil was an awesome character that liked to steal other people's villains. <laughs> I always have loved that cover on uh, Star Trek number seven, I think. That's a nice cover. Yeah. The Origin of Savick, yes, by Dan Day and uh, Dick Giordano, but it's just, it's classic. I really, really like that one. Legion of Superheroes, number one. That <sighs> first storyline in that series was great. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I was talking about that the other day, because uh, uh, they were talking about Nemesis Kid on the Who's Who podcast, and uh, led to a funny, like, put him in a body bag, Johnny! <laughs> I, uh, there's a promo poster that they released, uh, for this series when it came out, you know, when, when Legion went to the Baxter format and it's this cover. And, uh, a number of years ago, I got a copy of that. I forget where I got it from. I think I only paid like five bucks or something. I need to get it framed and up on my wall one of these days. I love that stuff, but this is the beginning of, of Giffen going into his kind of weirder phase. You know, it's, it's not quite as clean as, as the prior, you know, the art and the prior Legion yeah. stuff that he was doing. But I do love the stories in that. That, that was a great run. And a couple other quick ones. I, I forget what the story involves here, but I always like that cover for uh, Tales of the Teen Titans 45 with uh, Aqua Boy coming up the elevator and going, hey, a little help here. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was a really good one. And uh, just in case all of you are dying to know how the story resolved with uh, Green Lantern versus the demolition team, uh, Green Lantern 179. Um, I haven't read it because, frankly, I don't give a rat's ass. So. <laughs> don't candy coat it, Scott. Tell us how you really There you go. It. By the way, that entire era, starting with uh, the first Len Wein, Dave Gibbons issue is now all in three trade paperbacks going up to issue 200. Oh, sweet. 
So uh, the third volume was just is about to be released or just was recently released. So uh, if you really want to, if you really want to see the Predator versus the Demolition Team, and God help you if you do, uh, you can you can now pick it up in trade paperback form. Uh, Action Comics number five fifty eight. Superman's like, don't look at me. I'm hideous. <laughs> I Ask like uh, oh, go ahead. I like Supergirl number twenty-two, where she's flashing her crotch at Gollum. <laughs> she is literally showing her panties in that one. It's just something you dirty, just don't. Dirty girl. She's a dirty, dirty whore. But yeah, you don't wow, you don't okay. see that very often with uh, with Supergirl. I really, you know, in this, of course, these days, you know, the way they're drawing her and everything, it's ridiculous. But back in this time, I, I can't remember. I don't. I don't think I ever saw Supergirl's well, underpants. To be fair, she's not wearing a skirt right now. So right. I ask this every time. Jonah Hex number eighty six. Yay or nay? Own it. Have not read it yet, but I do okay. own it. I love this cover. Absolutely love this cover. It's uh, it's really good. He's uh, just turning to look as somebody's coming at him with a friggin' meat hook. It's like yeah. Yeah. No, it's not going to end well for the guy with the meat hook. <laughs> Get a rope. Um, <laughs> Sun Devils number two. Here, here's the funny thing about Sun Devils, folks. It was written by Jerry Conway. It was drawn by Dan Jurgens, And eventually Dan starts writing the series uh, as well. It was a 12-issue maxi series. And the the characters, some of them appeared in an issue of Superman... In, ni- in the late 1993, mm-hmm. and Jeffrey Taylor and I were covering that issue recently, so I'm like, you know what? I bought this series out of a 50-cent box. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read it. That way I can talk about it on the show, right? Because then I can have all this information about how the Sun Devil series played out. I read that first issue and had no desire to ever read the series ever again. Wow, that good, it was huh? just It's not that it was bad. It just You ever have something that just didn't appeal to you? Like you realize that it's it's you are not the target audience of this of this comic. Yeah, pretty much any time I pick up a book that says uh, Grant Morrison and was involved on it, I have that reaction. So yeah, I know exactly what <laughs> wow. you're talking about. Ah, we're back uh, <laughs> a couple weeks, uh, right back into the Grant Morrison stuff. Very. <laughs> But no, no, I know exactly what you mean to just pick something up and go, wow, yeah. No, I don't think so. I do. <laughs> Anything else? Anything else catch your eye? Yes. One of my least favorite comic book covers of all time. Right here, baby. Superpowers number two. <laughs> I recently bought like all three of these series really cheap on eBay. It, it I mean, it's just a horrid cover. I don't know what's going on with Lex Luthor shooting out of the bottom of his wrist. I don't know who the the what is that guy? I don't know who, know who he is or what he's supposed to be. The guy behind Superman. Superman looks like he has a wicked, wicked writer's cramp, and then the Flash literally looks like he's been run over by a truck. <laughs> it's just I really don't like that cover. It's um. Actually, you know what? I was going to say that this is... What's that dude's name? Theakston, Greg Theakston, imitating yes. Jack Kirby. But this actually says it's Jack Kirby. No, so. no, Jack Kirby drew this first series. Okay. 
But yeah, I know eventually they did sequels, and it was uh, Theakston uh, doing his his Kirby imitation. But yeah, this. I'm sorry. I mean, I've I've made no bones about not being the biggest Jack Kirby fan in the world anyway. But I, I have come, I've kind of come around. I feel a little bit about that over the years. But I, I will say this: I think I these days I think there's good Kirby and there's bad Kirby. This is bad Kirby, and this is why I was not a Kirby fan as a kid growing up because this was what this was the Kirby that was coming out when I was coming up as as a young comics collector. And it's just not pretty. I ugh, really, really don't like that. But, uh, man, there's some other really fine stuff coming out this this month. That issue of uh, action that you were you were talking about is it any good? Because I don't know. I've not happened. read that one. Oh, yet. Okay, yeah. See, I don't. I either have it and haven't read it, or I don't even have it. I can't remember. But I, I've always liked that. Yeah, cover. I mean, I I've got an entire my run of action goes back to. Yeah, two, three, ninety-four. Wow. Yeah, but I haven't read all of it yet because that's a lot of comics. <laughs> and, and, and and you really have to because Superman of the Bronze Age. Hi, Charlie, and J. David Weeder, uh, is kind of hit and miss. Oh, you know, yes. like there's some years that are like really good, and then there's some years where you're like, whoa. Uh, I can't, since I don't have the emotional attachment I have to like the, the, the post-crisis stuff, I can't just sit down and read the whole thing and be all excited about it. So I've been kind of trying to do it in chunks, right? Like I'll read a section here and I'll read a section there when something kind of catches my eye. And to be fair, those Leo Dorfman stories from right around the time, uh, that the silver trans transitioned into the bronze age, they're wacky, but they're really good, like really enjoyable. One of my favorite being Superman, you're dead, dead, dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you love that because obviously it has uh, Abraham Lincoln in it. So. <laughs> Speaking of which, did you notice that the the uh, Professor Peabody and Sherman movie seems to be like ripping off Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? I only caught the tail end of a uh, of a trailer for that the other day as I was walking in the door from, from work and it just happened to be finished and I was like, ooh. So, yeah, I might have to check. I always like that feature on uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, so I might have to check that out. I don't know that I'll rush out to see it in theaters, but, you know, I'll probably <laughs> well, see it. Well, Abraham Lincoln comes to the present. So. Ah, cool. Well, I hope he gets to hook up with Genghis Khan and they become buddy cops in, like, New York <laughs> or L.A. or something. That I, I'm telling you, that's one of my fondest dreams to this day, is I want there to be a, a buddy cop show with Abe Lincoln and, and Genghis Khan. It's like set in the 70s. You can call it like Ass Kicking Abe or something like, you know, Ass Kicking Abe and the Mongolian or something, whatever the hell. I just think that would be awesome. And he's got to say party on, dude, at the end of every episode, too. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. 
Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the tales of the Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm.